How does this influence your marriage? How does this influence your relationship with your children? What does Christ-likeness look like in the home? Well, you can fool a lot of people by coming to church and acting like everything's all right. But your children know when things are not right. And they know, your priority, they know when you got your priorities right. And they know when you'd rather be at a football game or, or church or serving someone. And you, you ask your children, what's, what's, what's daddy really interested in? What's he passionate about? What does he spend his money on? Pretty easy. Children can figure it out. I think um, Jesus, through the Spirit, calls us to produce fruit. And that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if you, if those things are evident in your life, your marriage will, your marriage will be fine. And and so I think, going back to being Christ-centered, when when we're reflecting on how we should live our lives uh, as as Christians, the fruit should be there. The fruit should be evidence. We'll never be like Christ. We can never attain that uh, until we leave this life. But God has called us to live as close to it as possible. And thank goodness we have, thank God that we have grace that allows us that. But each day, that's why we say we need to be in a growing relationship with, with, with Jesus. It's something every day that we're striving for. And I, I know there's areas in my life where the, I need more fruit in certain of those areas. And so, um, you know, it's just a continual thing. Paul says in Ephesians that husbands love your wives even if Christ loved the church. If, if we study how, how, how Jesus loved the church and what he did for it, how he, everything was around it and not, not itself, we, 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 marriage would be a whole lot better. In all the discussions about husbands and wives and tr- trouble, I never heard a wife say their husband was like Jesus in, in one way, you know. When you, when, you, when you live your life like Jesus would and serve her, that's 90% of the problem right there. Go on. We believe firmly that a lot of the problems that we're dealing with is because we haven't gotten first things first right. Amen. With that being the case, just like we ask the church to do three things, come to services, go to a Bible study, and go to a life group. Those are not the only three things we want the church to do. We want the church to become like Christ. That if we can become like Christ, these other things that get in our way of being a proper Christian are going to take care of themselves. Our marriages are going to be better. Our finances are going to be better. Our kids are going to do well or better in school. The things that are bothering us, the picky in things, uh, are not going to bother us if we can become like Christ. And we're asking that we go back to the basics for that very reason. In, in the relationship that we have one with another, the family, the wife, the children, that we become selfless in this. We cannot change. I cannot change my spouse. Only I can change myself. And so that's what we have to reflect, I have to reflect upon, is changing myself to be more like Christ in this relationship with my wife. And so, and you know, it, it all first begins with a vow that we made at marriage till death do us part. I mean, you've got to have that foundational thing there, and you've got to be resolute in saying, regardless of what happens in my life, we're married for life. And so I think you know, it begins there, but it, it, it's, it's hard work. It's hard work.
Today we go to Colossians chapter 3. I hope you open your Bible there. In, in chapter 3, t- Paul is making a turn. He's been talking about the theological basis of the way we should live, and now he's going to get really, really practical. In fact, look at Colossians 3, verse 1, out of the message translation. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. You you see, obviously, they're dealing with some people here that aren't quite so serious about living the life. And the question for us this morning is, are we serious about living this new resurrected life? And Paul would say to us, okay, if you really say you're a Christian, if you really say you're following Jesus, well, then it needs to permeate every area of your life. You need to act like it. It's very interesting. In all of Paul's writings, he, he talks in the first part of the book about the theological and then the second part about the practical. In the first part of Colossians, he's talked about belief, and now the second half, he's going to talk about behavior. He talks a lot about grace, and now actually Paul's going to talk about rules. Now, if you go to a life group today, I challenge you to talk about why that order in his books? I think there's lots of reasons. You see, we're dealing with this theme today that Paul gave us last week called Christ Our Life. You see, that's what the elders are trying to say to you on that video. That's what we're trying to say to each other is that we want Jesus Christ to be our life. You see, we all struggle, don't we, with compartmentalizing our life. Well, I've got my, my work life and I've got my church life, I've got my business life, I've got my home life, I've got my leisure life. And and if we're not careful, we we make those each individual compartments. And that's why some of us can look one way at church in a completely different way at work. Or maybe one way when we gather with our life group in a completely different way when we're with our families. And what Paul is saying is, I want Christ to be your entire life. Stop the compartmentalizing your life and allow Jesus to permeate every single area. And that's why we're trying to emphasize this theme of Christ being our life. I hope this week you've been wearing your wristband. Because when you you begin to see that and you think about that, let me tell you a few things that's going to do. First of all, it's going to help you put your idols in their place. We all have idols. No, they're not physical idols altars, but we all have things that become too important to us. And so remembering that Christ is my life reminds me to look at that idol and go, you know what? I shouldn't be this, you know, wrapped out of shape about this. I shouldn't be this upset about this. I shouldn't be this obsessed about this because you're not my life. I mean, you might be in my life, but you're not my life. Christ is my life, and that makes an incredible difference. It'll help you keep those idols in place. It'll also help me put Christ in His place. That He deserves, my friends, to be number one. Now, how far does that go? Well, here's, here's our point today. Christ being number one goes as far as behind closed doors. Now, we as Americans rightly say to our government, don't enter our home. This is my sanctuary. I I deserve the right of privacy in my home. And I don't want the government coming into my living room and telling me what I can do. But as Christians, we say to Jesus, the door is wide open. 
We want you to come into our home. Every room in our house is open to your lordship. And that's what happened with, when Christ is our life. Now today, we really need to look at this whole idea of Christ coming behind closed doors. You know, we live in a society where family is falling apart. Some of us have experienced the pain of that. I'm not here to make you feel worse. But on the other hand, we've got to be aware of what is happening and the repercussions of what's going on. Listen to these statistics. The divorce rate in 1870 was one in every 34 marriages. By 1900, it was one in five. By 1950, it was one divorce for every three marriages. And today, it's one divorce for every two marriages. And the repercussions are incredible. I was invited to a conference a few months ago where they talked about society. It really wasn't even based on religion. It was based on some studies from some major universities that actually were shocked by the finding. Universities that we think of being rather secular, like Princeton University and the University of Texas. And they'd done a statistical study about almost every area of problems in our culture. Whether it was drugs, or people in prison, people breaking the law, income disparity, you name it. And they found, honestly to their amazement, it might not have been to our amazement, but that all of those areas where we struggle in are directly tied to the breakdown of the family. Every statistic, whether who goes to prison, who gets on drugs, who does, it was all completely different among those who grew up in strong families and those who didn't. Now we shouldn't, we as Christians aren't shocked at that. Maybe we need to be a little bit. Because what it's saying is the foundation of our culture, the foundation of our society is what we do in our families. And so we get to Colossians 3 today, and the Apostle Paul is going to give us, I, I call this a poster board. He's going he's to make it very succinct. Today we're looking at four verses that are just four sentences. And on this poster board, he's just going to give some advice, some rules about how to have a healthy family. Let me give them to you quickly. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't embitter your children. Pretty interesting. Let's look at those four verses and study for a little while together. And let's seek to have healthy families. My friends, God's got the answer. The question is, are you listening? My question as we begin this morning is, can something be said here? Can something be said here that could actually change the way you behave in your home? Or you just come to church to go through the motions today? That's why Paul said, you know what? If you're really into this resurrected life, would you act like it? Let's all be honest. Often the most difficult place and the place we most often compartmentalize as being distinct is what goes on in our home. And Paul says, I want to get behind closed doors and I want to do some business with you. Wives, let's start with you. Look at this first verse, verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, for us, let's be honest, we do not like the word submit. We don't like it in any area of life. But let me say this to you. In the Bible, it's a very popular word. Scripture has no problem with it. And almost everyone is 
called upon to submit. Jesus was called upon to submit to his Father. Even in the unity of the Trinity, there was a submissive relationship where Jesus submitted to his Father. In the church, we are told to submit to our leaders. In our marriages, we are honestly told back in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are in some sense to submit to one another. So despite the fact in our independent culture, we don't like the word submit, submit's a very good word in the Bible. And so when it comes to wives, we especially get sensitive. This sounds so old-fashioned, so archaic. But listen, the word submit has nothing to do with inequality, that one of the spouses is worth more than the other. The word submit here is simply a military term. It simply means to rank under. If you're in the military, because you're a private and someone above you is a colonel, doesn't mean they're better than you or a better person. It simply means there's a line of authority. And in the home, God said, what I don't want to have is a two-headed monster. I'm going to set up some authority. And wives, in this authority, you are to submit to your husband as you submit to the Lord. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now listen to this. One reason Paul had to write this was because Jesus had so elevated the role of women that there was an issue with this. My friends, before Christianity, in Jewish culture, women were more or less things. In Greek culture, they were just secluded. A man lived his life. He had his little wife over here on the side if he wanted to fulfill himself sexually or if he wanted to have children. But other than that, their lives were almost completely, talking about divorce, divorce. And so when Jesus comes and some of Jesus' strongest followers and best disciples are women, Jesus has elevated the role of women to a role it had never known in ancient culture. But God also wants to remind us that there still is a line of authority in the home and that wives are to submit to their husbands. There begins to be a lot of trouble when we don't understand this. Wives, this is not saying that you agree with your husband about everything or that he's right about everything. It simply means that you respect him enough to submit to his authority. It's fitting. It's what the Lord has planned for you. So I challenge wives. Oftentimes things are difficult in the family because both of you want to rule. And we get in a power struggle. Now, men, this is something certainly that could be abused, this word. I'm the authority. I'm the king. I'm the dictator. You do exactly what I want to do. There's no discussion. No, that, that's not what he's saying. He'll fight that in the next verse, all right? But he is saying, guys, at the end of the day, and a decision needs to be made, and maybe you can't come to consensus or agreement, you need to submit. That's just what he says. And again, that's not an ugly thing. That truly, biblically, is a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean you're not equal to him. My friends, Jesus was in every way equal to his Father in heaven, but he also chose to submit. All right? That's the first line of our poster. Line number two. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul knows what he's just said needs to be balanced. That, that we as men have a tendency, if we're not careful, to be harsh, to be overbearing, 
to maybe take this leadership role to a place that God never intended it to be. So he says, you need to love your wives. Now, Paul would add in Ephesians chapter 5, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. You talk about a standard. I, I like what Junior said on that video. He's never talked to a married couple where the husband was loving his wife the way Christ loved the church where there was complaints. Guys, if we want to take the leadership role and we go, yes, we are the leaders, and yes, they need to submit, be, be very careful about that. You need to lead in love. This is not a dominating, dictatorial role. This is a loving role. And the word that Paul uses here is not for romantic love. He's not opposed to that. It's for this highest form of love known in the Greek language called agape love, which is really more of an action than a feeling. And so so Paul's saying, men, you want to lead your family? Lead them with love. I like the story of this couple. They went to this counselor. They've been going for weeks and weeks and making no progress. And the, the counselor was getting frustrated with him, especially frustrated with the husband because he just wouldn't change. And so finally, in about the, the seventh session, in the middle of the session, the counselor stood up from where he was sitting, walked over, and gave the wife a big hug. And then as he walked back to his chair, he looked at the husband and said, that's exactly what she needs. And the husband said, well, I'll bring her to your office on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) I play golf on Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays. Now, sometimes we're a little bit dense. And that's why Paul has to say, man, don't be harsh. Don't take this as an excuse to dominate. Instead, you use this as a reason to love. Now, let's be honest. For many of us, this this is hard work. I love what Brother Dick said. Marriage is hard work. You want to be successful in this, guys? you got to let Jesus in. I, I know, guys, there's some of you that what happens in your home is so completely different than what we see at church. And some of you wives, you're not, you just won't submit. You just argue and fight him about everything. And you're destroying the peace of your home. And some of you men, you won't lead with love. And it's destroying your wife. One of the most fascinating stories I've, I've heard in years was about Bill McCartney. Many of you remember him. Back in the 80s and early 90s, he was the head football coach at the University of Colorado. Actually won one national championship. He was also the leader in what many of us participated in back in those days, the Promise Keepers movement, which was a great movement you know, that filled stadiums across this country, calling men to keep their promises. But a few years ago, Coach McCartney wrote a book called Sold Out, in which he told his story. And part of his story was the truth that his marriage had never really been great. And that he was so obsessed with his work and so driven that he didn't pay much attention to his wife. And she even writes some of the chapters in the book and says for a long time she was pretty much okay with that. I mean, she knew he did his thing and and she just sort of handled being alone and in the home and with the children. But things took a dramatic turn for the worse. They never were good. But for the worse, in 1993, when McCartney shared with his wife, Lindy, that two decades before this he had had an affair. 
He shared it with her the day his team was playing in the Fiesta Bowl. And she was devastated. And from that point on, she withdrew herself. She would hardly get out of her bedroom. She lost about 80 pounds. And she writes, I just felt like I was getting smaller and smaller. And then in 1994, they went to church one Sunday morning. Remember, this is the leader of Promise Keepers. And a preacher got up and said this, If you want to know a man's character, then look into his wife's face. Whatever he's invested or withheld from her will be reflected in her countenance. He turned to his wife and he saw the haunted, empty look in her eyes. And Bill McCartney was convicted about his own sinful neglect. And he writes, Escorting my wounded wife out of the church, out to the church parking lot, I begin to pray about the timing of my resignation as head football coach at the University of Colorado. And if you know the story, you know he resigned in the height of his career and went and devoted himself to his wife. And my, my, my men, I say to all of us, would you look at the countenance of your wife's face? Does it say something about what you've given to her or what you have withheld from her? You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul goes a little deeper in this, and he makes really a very interesting point that I think has been hidden from us for a long time. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33, he says, um, Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, again, it's sort of fascinating here. Why doesn't he use the same terms? Why doesn't he tell husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands? But if, if you don't remember anything else from this message, here might be a really practical point for your marriage. Every study has shown Paul was not just making up words there. That what wives really need is they need that kind of nurturing love. And what husbands need, even more than love, is they need respect. The ancient formula is still true. And so wives, in your submission, show respect to your husband. That's what he needs even more than your expression of love. The best words to your husband you could give him is, I respect you. Men, what your wife needs... Oh, she needs respect, but even more, she needs love. And the best words you can say to her is, I love you. So Paul says, this is what wives need to do. Here's what husbands need to do. And then he gets even further into our house and goes to the children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now let me talk to us parents for a moment, and then I'm going to talk to the children. A lot of the reasons our children do not obey is because we do not expect obedience. Somehow in our permissive culture, we've almost decided we're doing our children a favor by not making them obey. That in the name of love, we have become so lax with our children 
that though we may threaten a thousand times you're going to get in trouble if you do this, and if you cross this line, there's going to be a punishment, we don't come through with it. And we don't expect obedience. I remember seeing a, a father down in this hall, this was a few years ago, and his son was running down the hall, just running away from him. It was Twosky Ralph, and Twosky said, Junior, stop running down the hall. And I saw his son stop in his tracks, turn around, and say, Yes, sir. I said, Twosky, how did you get that to happen? He said, He knows what's going to happen if he doesn't, all right? Parents, we've got to teach our children obedience. One of the worst examples in Scripture was Eli the high priest who failed to restrain his sons. And they had no regard for the Lord. By not teaching your children obedience, you are teaching them that it's okay. And the people that are going to reap that are the teachers and the coaches and the police and the employers and the elders. Because we live in a culture where you just don't say yes. Years ago, we all know this, the elders of the church could stand before a church like this and say, we want you to do these three things. It happened. We know that's not the truth anymore. Because we live in a culture where we really don't want to submit and obey anybody. But even worse than all of that, even worse than what you're going to do to the teachers and the coaches and the elders, is what you're going to do to their relationship with God. Because if they don't learn how to obey and submit to you, they're going to have a hard time learning to obey and submit to God. So parents, we've got to learn. We've got to learn to say no sometimes. We indulge our children way too much. I remember when John Roseman was here, he did this survey. He said, parents, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down all of your dreams and aspirations. If you can have and do anything you want to, write it down on a piece of paper. Just have a big time. And so we took and we just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And and he said, okay, stop. Now look over that list, parents, and tell me what percentage of those things you think are going to happen that you dream about. And I, I think the average was about... 30% of it will happen. You know, just the things we dream about, the possessions we'd like to have. Then he said this. What percentage of the time do you say yes to your children? And most of us were about 90%. And Roseman said this. You're doing your child a disservice because you are preparing them for life that will not exist. In your home, they're getting 90% of everything they want. In culture, they might get 30%. You've set them up for disaster. So parents, we need to teach our children to obey if we really love them. See, that's the crazy thing about today's culture. We say if we love them, they get by with it. That's really a lie. And children, let me speak to you for a moment. You have been commanded to God, by God to obey your parents. That doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean you like it. Now, here's the cool thing. When you're obedient and you say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, and you do what your parents ask you, here's what this scripture just said to us. You will please the Lord. You want to do something when you leave this place that will actually please God? You go out and you obey your parents. 
In Ephesians, he says, if you do this, all may go well with you and you may enjoy a long life on this earth. Now, that's a quotation from the Ten Ten Commandments back in Deuteronomy chapter 5. He's saying, guys, if you obey your parents, you're going to live longer. Now, the Old Testament, that might have something to do with it. If you did disobey, you were stoned, all right? I'm not talking about getting drunk, all right? You were stoned. But it's still true. You want to have a good life? You learn to obey your parents and to show respect to them in the home. And your life can go a whole lot better. Because these kids who get out of the home that are used to getting their way on everything, they're the kids that can go to work and they're always going to be done wrong. The teacher's going to do them wrong. The coach is going to do them wrong. The employer's going to do them wrong. Because anybody who says no to them is, 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 is do, taking them to land they've never been to. The parents learn to expect obedience. Children learn to obey. Here's the last part of the poster board. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Again, man, it seems like he's got to give us some extra instruction. Don't embitter them. I, I like the, the translation, many translations. Don't exasperate them. Why? Because as as men, again, just like with our wives, we can be harsh. We tend to be heavy-handed and overbearing often with our children. And you can exasperate them to the point of giving up. Many of you should remember the very popular movie, The Dead Poet Society. It was about a young man that grew up in privilege named Neil Perry. And he was sent off to boarding school. His dad had every plan for him to be a doctor and saw nothing else for his child to do. But Perry got to this boarding school and he tried out for a play and he got the lead role. And his dad begrudgingly came to the play. You may remember the story. And the sun shined and the audience gave a standing ovation. But the father was so overbearing as soon as it was over, he didn't congratulate him on his performance. He took him to the side and he said, Son, tomorrow I'll withdraw you from this school. I'm not going to allow you to waste your life as an actor. And I am going to enroll you in a military school tomorrow. And if you remember the movie, it was that night that Neil Perry took his life. And my friends, fathers... When we are overbearing with our children, we lead them down very discouraging roles. How, how do, let me just give you a few ways that, men, that we exasperate or we embitter our children. First of all, you, when, when you ignore them. I, I feel this morning for the, the single mothers in this audience, because I know you struggle, and hopefully we help take some of that role. But it makes me angry at the fathers who actually are in the home and ignore their children. Some of us live such independent lives, we just think that's all our wife's job. Every child needs the love of a father. You have something that you could give them that nobody else could give them. Sometimes we embitter them by indulging them. Sometimes we, we uh, exasperate them by insulting them. 
When in the name of obedience and discipline, you call your children names, you ridicule them, you scream at them, and you treat them without respect, and you want them to treat you with respect? Sometimes we um, exasperate them by intimidating them. I imagine an audience this big, some of you at times are physical with your children that you should not be because you're bigger and you're stronger. Some of us intimidate our children by just micromanaging everything in their life. We hover over them like a cop. Some of us intimidate them by giving out punishment that far exceeds the infraction. We threaten huge things. If they do this, and then we have to do something that really doesn't match what they did. And some of us exasperate our children because whatever they do can never please us. You ever um, had a teacher that you could never please? A coach you could never please? A parent you could never please? What do you do in the long run? What do you do in the long run when whatever you do is not good enough? Whatever you do is criticized and scrutinized. In the long run, you say, I will never live up to this standard, so I just am not going to care. Fathers, do you give your children more words of encouragement or more words of scrutiny and criticism? What we don't want to do, we do want to lead our families. We do want to cause our children to obey. But we don't want to is embitter them to the point they say, you know what, I can't please this old guy no matter what I try. I'm giving up and I'm just going to live in silence and rebellion. So, okay, I hope you hear today, men, a challenge to men. And the challenge is for us to lead. And I I want to give this specific challenge here today. I'm not talking about dominating. I'm not talking about being a dictator in your home. I'm talking about you and I leading like Jesus. Whether we want to admit this or not, it's very plain in this passage that there's more emphasis and more teaching toward us as men than toward our wives. Why would that be true? Here's the only answer I can come up with. We're more of a problem. I don't know what it is, but there's something in our wiring, our propensity that allows harshness and roughness and some of these things we're talking about to be a part of us. I remember visiting the Soviet Union when it had fallen down. We were in the Ukraine and we were with there and the culture is decimated. And all the leaders in all the homes, almost to no exception, were the women because the men were just out drunk. And you saw a whole culture that would not function because men would not lead. And I'm afraid in our day-to-day here in America, I'm telling you guys, I talk to a lot of people. I talk to very few people who tell me I've got a bunch of mother issues in my life. I hardly ever talk to someone who's really deeply in problem that they don't tell me they've got some father issues in their life. And that's why we got to wake up. Because men, you set the atmosphere for the home. You're, you're, you've been called by God. You can abdicate that and screw everything up. Or you can step up and lead. And let's say this. We also set the tone in the church. 
I believe the Bible teaches male leadership. I don't think it means all the things we've interpreted through the years, and I think we've been way overboard with that. But I still believe the tone of the church is going to be set by the men. And in too many churches, we know it's the ladies who do most of the work. It's the ladies who are the most spiritual in the home. It's the ladies who are the most godly. And I hope you take this as a challenge. But what your wife yearns for more than anything else is for you to stand up and lead. And what this church yearns for, or I'm not talking about feminized leadership men. I'm talking about bold, risk-taking leadership, spiritual, godly men. You say, buddy, how can I do that? Man, man, I've blown it so bad. I've already blown one marriage. Let me tell you this. Don't you dare blow another one. I've worried my children at this age and I had let me say this. Here's the cool thing about what we're teaching. To husbands and wives, it's never too late to start. Never too late. Guys, we, we can't change what you have done in the past, so let's don't even deal with that right now. We've all got parts of our past we're embarrassed by. But what we can change right now is what we are going to do in the future. Now, how could that happen? Let me tell you. That's why I think Paul talks about theology before he gets here. You can change as a man. You can change as a woman if you will, first of all, make Christ the foundation of your life. It's when Christ is that foundation, when Christ is your life, that you learn to lead, you learn to love, you learn to submit, you learn to obey, because you first experience that through Jesus Christ. Let me tell you guys, nothing that Paul has said in this poster board lesson is going to change until you put Jesus number one. Because he's the one, you say, man, I've tried so long, or I'm new in my marriage, I'm wanting to work. Or there's some of you here, your marriage is falling apart. It's on the edge of disaster. And the only hope is Jesus. So men, in this special challenge today, I want to invite you to be able to pray with another man. So I'm going to ask all the elders in the audience and all of our ministers, if you'd come surround the stage. If you're an elder or minister, if you would please come right now and surround the stage. And men, while we sing, I'm not going to ask you to come fill a card out and spear your guts in front of everybody. I'm just going to ask you to come to one of these men and say, man, I need to be a better husband. Somehow, I I just got to learn to love my wife. I'm too harsh on my children. Or maybe I'm too lax with my children. But of all things, I want to get this right. Of all things in my life, I don't want to lose my family. So you'll have a chance to pray with them. Mark Loudermilk gave me a quotation this week I thought was really awesome. Prayer is not a substitute for action, is an action for which there is no substitute. So you think, buddy, well, all I'm going to do is come up here and pray with someone. Let me, let me say this, guys. To pray with someone can be life-changing. It's an action for which there is no substitute. You want to humble yourself? You want to submit yourself to God? Come pray. Just come up, tell one of these men your name. Tell them what you need prayers about. And while we sing together, be prayed about your role. Maybe you're a pretty good husband, pretty good father, but you want to be a great one. Or maybe you're just concerned about your child or your grandchild and you want somebody to pray about it. Or maybe your marriage is on the rocks today 
and you've just sat here silently in this church while it fell apart. And you know when we're going to find out about it? You know when these guys are going to find out about it? They're going to find out about it when it's way too late and there's nothing they can do. You talk about frustrating as the shepherds of this church? So some of you, many of us, take a proactive stance today. Come let somebody pray with you. If you need to confess something or become a Christian, meet me on the front row. But if you'd like to pray with one of us, why don't you come right now while we stand and sing?